Let's go to the throne of grace before we open his word. And uh, as we do, I, um, I certainly want us to remember John and Bethana. Uh, you know, it's been, we're going on two months since, uh, let's see, it was 21st, 19th. I think it was the 12th that he went into the hospital and uh, been sick maybe about going on three, three and a half months, but diagnosed later in June. But let's remember them as we go to the throne of grace. Father, thank you for caring for us when at times we've not given much thought of you. Thank you for wooing us, subduing our hearts as our King and Lord when we would naturally be resistant to you. Thank you for breaking down our resistance by the work of your Spirit. We need your help this night as we open your word. We pray for your grace. Your Spirit's help to show us Christ. Help us to see the role of the Spirit in fighting sin. So we pray for grace. We remember John and Bethana tonight asking that their strength would entirely be in you, that even all those descriptions of you that David celebrates in Psalm 18 is you as his rock, his fortress, his hiding place his strong tower, his refuge, that you would be that to them this night. So we lift them up to you. We entrust them to you. We pray even that you might heal our brother, that this sickness might be ultimately to glorify you, that he would live through it into even more fruitful days. And we pray that now all those gospel seeds that they've planted over seven, almost eight years there in the desert would sprout forth to life. So hear us. We thank you. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think, Penelope, you were going to put us up there for Romans 7, beginning, I think, in verse 21. Yeah. And... I'd like us to read through verse 17 together, and in five, uh, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I think this would be good. What if you as a congregation read 21 through 25 out loud? I'll help a little bit, and then I'll read from 8-1 through verse 17 of chapter 8. So together, you read, I'll read with you 21 through 25 there at the end of chapter 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh 
I serve the law of sin. Now I'll read 8, 1 through 11. Then I'm going to ask you to join me again back in verse 12. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body, or although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now together through verse 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Very good. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Well, all of us here tonight are no doubt for life. If I said, who is pro-life, I think everyone would raise your hand, okay? But can you imagine that actually the Bible is pro-death? It is, for as we saw last week in our opening message, the normal Christian life is one of death, killing actually, as we are called to put to death our indwelling of the sin that remains in us. Are you a Christian? Then you are a soldier. As the Puritan John Owens wrote, we should know this, everyone should know, be killing sin or what? Or sin will be killing you. And that expresses the necessity of mortification as we see it there in the first half of Romans eight thirteen. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Or literally, you are about to die. 
And it's why Paul says in verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors. That is, we are under obligation. And he sets up here what he's already done in the first 11 verses of Romans 8 to give us an A and a B, the flesh and the spirit. He does this, very simple. There's not a third option, okay? And what Paul contrasts there in the first 11 verses of chapter 8 is life according to the flesh versus life according to the Spirit. Those who set their minds, Paul says, on the things of the flesh bring death. But those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit find something completely different and altogether better. And Paul says it this way, in verses five and six. And I want to read it again for us. And I want to encourage you, put your mind on these verses. Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh, that is in line with or alignment or after the flesh, the old nature, these set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is, in line with the Spirit, and therefore the new nature in the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And he says this in verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Tonight we come to the means of mortification. This is when we ask and then answer the question, how do we actually do it? What is or what are the means of killing sin? And three little words in one powerful phrase describe it by the Spirit. Last week we saw the need there in the first part of verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. I don't know about you kids, but if someone says, if you do this, then you're about to die, I'm probably not going to do that. I'm going to look for an alternative uh, plan, plan B. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's non-negotiable. It's undebatable. Flesh equals death, spirit equals life, and peace. So last week, the need. This week, the means. And I'm going to ask and answer three questions tonight. Here is the outline, three simple questions. What do we mean by means? Okay, that sounds like wordplay. What do we mean by means? Secondly, how is the spirit central in the whole plan or scheme of redemption? Or what you could ask it this way, what is the Spirit's role in the plan of redemption? And then thirdly, what does Paul mean in these words by the Spirit? Now, I want um, to give you from John Owen, who really wrote the most exhaustive treatment on Romans 8, 13, I think, that the church has in its possession. And John Owen, when he wrote this some roughly 400 years ago, all right, he gave 
three foundational principles for the mortification of sin. By the way, kids, we talked about what mortification means. To mortify sin simply means to do what? Kill it. If you mortify a roach, you have killed a roach. All right? No roach wants to suffer mortification at your hands, but everybody in our house wants those roaches to suffer it at my hands. But this is what Owen says, three foundational principles for the mortification of sins. Number one, he says, first, believers who are free from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. All right, number one, believers, daily work, we who are free from the condemning power of sin make it our daily work to mortify the indwelling power of sin. In fact, that's why we read those those last few verses from Romans 7. Paul speaks about the law of sin at the end of verse 23 that dwells in my members. Look at that. He speaks of the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's the principle of sin. And he seems incredibly sad and broken for this wretched man that I am. And he asks the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then look, he says, hey, here's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the answer to his question is that Jesus will deliver him from this body of death and indwelling sin. So first, it's our daily work as believers to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Number two, which is where we are tonight, only the Holy Spirit is sufficient for this work. There's the means. That is by the Spirit, that little phrase. And then third, the life, vigor, and comfort of the believer's spiritual life depends much upon this work of mortifying sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What is the sin that you're, so, that you're aware of it remains aggravating you, tempting you, tripping you up that tomorrow when you rise on August 7th, you know as you thank the Lord for preserving you through the night, you need to pray that he would help you fight that sin during the day. What would that be? So three questions, what do we mean by means? By means, we mean the instrument or tool to accomplish something, to achieve an end or goal. You might say it this way, by the strength of my hand or by the means of my hand, I remove the cap from this bottle of water. We write by means of a pen, pencil, or writing instrument. We paint by means of a brush. We grind coffee by means of what? A coffee grinder. We pound nails into boards, not by a pounder, but by a what? A hammer. Those are means you get the idea. And we don't equate the two. The hammer is not the pounded nail, all right? My hand is not the removal of cup. The one is the means to the end of the other. For example, imagine a corn seed, one little 
corn seed removed from an ear of corn. It's not the same as a corn plant or an ear of corn, but the seed is an instrument. It's a means to having a corn stalk and therefore two ears of corn. Now, to be fair, there's the corn seed that's then put in the ground and there's sun and there's rain and maybe there's even if it's not organically grown there's some type of fertilizer agent to reduce to mitigate the bugs the insects that would you know destroy that stalk and therefore the ears of corn but between the seed the water the sun the even the hand that puts the seed in the ground these are all means of producing an edible ear of corn. Now you might note, if you look at Romans 8 and verse 13, you don't find the word means, but you have the idea of means, right? In the Bible, we find the concept of Trinity, but not the word itself. That's okay. The concept is there, even if the explicit word is lacking. No, it's not there. Paul is telling us that the Spirit is the means. He's the instrument of mortification, our killing sin, by this little phrase, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. Well, how is the Spirit central in the whole of redemption? The Spirit, as one of the three persons of the Trinity, is central in this plan or economy, I don't care what word you want to use, of God's redemption. No spirit, if there's no spirit, there's no redemption. Even in the upper room discourse between John 13 and John 17, Jesus is very clear, don't worry, I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm leaving you with another comforter who will mediate my presence and teach you everything that you need to know. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. No spirit, no redemption. And it, of course, can be said of any of the three persons of the Trinity. Think of each of their roles in this way. Don't complicate this. The Father planned redemption. The Son accomplished it. And the Spirit applies it. The Father conceived the plan of atonement. The Son accomplished it. And the Spirit applies it. All right, he in effect gives life. He vivifies the believer from the first moment of conviction to the spirit stirring through the word, through the word of the gospel, all the way to glorification as we see in Romans 8. That's a Trinitarian or three in one God salvation. Now, if you look carefully, and I want you to turn, keep Romans 8 open there. And I mentioned this, I think, last week. There's something that's surprising if you never knew this. In the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, the word for the Spirit of God only occurs three times in the first seven chapters. 1, 4, 2, 29, and 5, 5. But when you comb through Romans 8, in the first 27 verses of Romans 8, the Spirit is referred to 20 different times. And what is Paul doing, you might ask, in this really densely packed celebration of the Spirit? He's outlining the work of the Spirit in redemption as the divine agent or applier of redemption. And you understand that before you get to Romans 8, what's very evident, particularly like 3 through 6, 
is in three through five, it's this whole work of the son in accomplishing our redemption. But then there is a focus here on the third person of the Trinity, especially in Romans eight. So what is this redemption? It's a rescue of sinners that's planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. No more, no less. So look, at, look with me now, just if you focus on Romans 8, and I want us, as we think about, we're trying to answer, right, this simple question. Here's the question. How is the Spirit central in the whole scheme of redemption? First, there in verse 2, It's actually the law or the principle of the spirit of life. Not simply the spirit, but the spirit of life. That makes sense because Paul says that those who who live according to the spirit and who set their minds on the spirit, for them that is life and peace. So Paul says here, it's the spirit of life. And it's he that sets us free as the children of God. All right, Paul means here by law the principle of the Spirit, but not in abstract terms. He means the person of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one sent by the Son as the Comforter who would teach the disciples all things. Secondly, look there in verse 4. By sending his Son, God formed a whole new humanity who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you're part of that whole new humanity. Thirdly, verse 6. It is the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit that is or experiences life and peace. And that life and peace is none other than the Spirit's life, none other than the Spirit's peace, so that in the life of the Christian, there's this holistic, organic fruit that Paul expresses in Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's another thing. Look there in verse 9. Now listen how I'm, I'm going to say this like A, B, B prime, A prime. The person who is in the Spirit, the person is in the Spirit if the Spirit is in the person. How do you know if a person is in the Holy Spirit, that is not in the flesh, not walking according to the flesh? Well, the test of that is if the Spirit is in the person and therefore Their mind is set on things of the Spirit. That defines a Christian. There is no middle ground. And so the application question for us is, what is our mindset on? What is is it that gives us our greatest joy and delight? Is it the things of God? There's another thing. Look in verse 10. Where the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit... Paul says his life because of righteousness. So verse 10 is an echo of verse 2. He's not the spirit of death. He's the spirit of life. And it's by him the spirit of life that we accomplish this process of putting to death the sin that still dwells in us. Look there in verse 11. Paul says if the spirit of Jesus could raise Jesus from the dead, then he can also give life to our mortal bodies by dwelling in us. 
Look in verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. They bear his likeness. They know his affection. They will receive their inheritance from him. We talked about that last week. This is very significant. Even the movement of speaking us as children, right? Children of God, but even moreover, sons of God. Some of you might know in your ESV Bible, the translators of the ESV Bible say there's, there's real significance in this phrase. And so, this phrase that we are sons of God is actually applied to a gathered group of men and women who are Christians. And the significance of it is, again, three, threefold. Threefold. We bear his likeness because he's our father and we're his sons. We know his affection And by virtue of our adoption by him, we will receive our inheritance from him. That's what sonship looks like in the kingdom. Also look at verse 15. If we've not received the spirit of slavery or no longer have the spirit of slavery, but we've received the spirit of adoption. So here's another phrase. Not simply the spirit of God or the spirit of life, but the spirit of adoption. We will express this to him by our childlike cries of Abba, Father, Abba, Father. That's why in Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, he says, when we are so worked up, so vexed, so frustrated, mourning to the point of not being able to utter to God anything but Father, Father, you know what needs to be done. You know it's on my heart. That is acceptable to him. We are then who without being able to articulate even the deepest parts of our heart, we just cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Also in verses 16 and 17, look there. It is the Spirit himself who bears witness with our spirit to all the dimensions of our life as children of God. Look at this. That we're children, and if children, then we're heirs, right? Everyone that's adopted receives an inheritance. That's the significance of the spirit being called the spirit of adoption there in verse 15. And if we are heirs, then we're heirs of God. And not simply that, but with Christ as our elder brother, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Right? He's the first fruits, but we're there with him. And Paul says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's proven by this continuance in the Christian life that shows that we're truly his. Look further that we have the first fruits, verse 23, of the Spirit as we await our adoption as Sons, is the first fruit for Israel were offered unto the Lord, so we are the Lord's. We are the first fruits, not simply a redemption, but we're called the first fruits of the Spirit, for it's the Spirit of life who gives us life, who, though we were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 1, yet God, being rich in mercy, brings us to life. Look there also, verse 26. He helps us in those we don't know how to pray. Moments of weakness, and he intercedes for us. 
If you're like me, sometimes you don't know how to solve a problem, and sometimes you simply don't know how to pray. But the Spirit helps us. And finally, as we consider the Spirit's role in redemption, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's there in verse 27. There he is. Let me express it this way. There he is, the Spirit. The Spirit who is introduced to us as hovering over the waters at the onset of creation, who gives life, who animates, who convicts, who regenerates, who yields life and peace for those whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit. The one who is life who indwells those who are Christ, who possesses the Christian, but is also possessed by the Christian. So the Christian can cry out boldly and confidently, Abba, Father, this is the Spirit, Paul says, who bears witness with our spirit, who helps us, who intercedes for us. Have you ever thought of this, that in fact there is the Son at the right hand of the Father ever interceding for us, but we're told also that, in fact, the Spirit intercedes for us. He's known as the forgotten member of the Trinity, but he is essential as one of the three persons of the Trinity, even as the answer to question seven in the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. Here's the answer. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these Three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. All right? These are to our salvation through Christ and his cross. All right? So finally, what does Paul mean in these words by the Spirit? Look there in verse 13, the middle phrase. All right? The verse 13, the middle phrase. So I want to give you just five points as we think what Paul means in these words by the Spirit. And I want you to understand as we look at this text, and we'll have two more weeks, and the, the focus is verse 13 within the context of verses 12 through 14. But I want you to know this by heart, that to break this down, that there is here in verse 13 the necessity of mortification. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Tonight is the means where he says, but if by the Spirit, next week is the nature of mortification. You put to death the deeds of the body, and then in our fourth week, the promise or reward of mortification. Paul says it this way simply, you will live. The necessity, the means, the nature, the reward, or the promise. So first, what does Paul mean in these words by the Spirit? The first thing is that I don't, I want to encourage us not to minimize the Spirit's role in our mortification because the expression is so brief or simple. All right, last week we acknowledged this phrase, when someone looks at you and says to you, I love you, and they mean it, Right? It's kind of like some of you, if you were dating before you married the person that at one time you were dating, some of you gave very, very serious thought before the words, I love you, 
came out of your mouth. You understand what I'm saying? That means something. There's power in those three words. Only three words, but very powerful. And same with these three words by the Spirit. There's great significance there, even if Paul doesn't yield a lot of detail to it. And we can deduce that from other parts of Scripture. But do not discount the significance of this brief expression. Secondly, Paul does not so much mean a principle here, but a person. The person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not a magical or impersonal force. There's no room here for phrases like, the force be with you. We need him, and he has promised to be in us. He is a being, one of the three divine persons of the Trinity. Thirdly, this is what I want us to see here, is that our means of the mortification of sin by the, by the Spirit does not negate the, the use of the means of grace. So let me say this one more time. That our means for the mortification of sin, that it is by the Spirit, it does not negate the use of the means of grace. If we are by the Spirit mortifying sins, then we will employ the means of grace, every one of them. There's no contradiction here. To mortify or kill sin by the Spirit is to do so by every means of grace. The Word, prayer, fellowship, corporate worship, the sacraments, songs, hymns, spiritual songs, fasting. You get the picture. God uses normal means. And for the Christian, growth and the pursuit of holiness, which includes mortification, That is the means of grace. Well, fourthly, to mortify sin, that is to put to death the sin that dwells in us that Paul refers to there, all right, in the end of Romans 7 and verse 23, is to negate, is to disavow, and to reject the apparent advantages of human power or human right. That's why I read from Jeremiah 9, 23 through 25 for our call to worship. And that's why we read in Zechariah 4, verse 6, these words. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The power and the might for our mortification of indwelling sin comes from the Spirit. John Owen said it this way. He said, speaking of this phrase by the Spirit as the means for mortification, he says, all other ways of mortification are vain. They're meaningless. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. And then he adds something that I think is pretty bold. Listen to this. And he's, gonna, he's saying, you see this in Romans 9, verses 30 through 32. This is what Owen says. Mortification from a self-strength, what we would call today self-sufficiency, carried on by ways of self-invention, as in Romans 9, verses 30 through 32, unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. A pretty strong statement. 
Owen is saying that if we by our own strength, our own sufficiency, our own inventiveness in trying to create our own righteousness, which Paul says in Philippians 3, he dare not do, right? He said, I don't want, I'm rejecting a righteousness that comes from the law in favor from one that comes by faith in a risen Christ. John Owen says that that effort is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. You'll find there's a fourth thing as we, fifth thing, as we think how this actually happens. When you look in the Greek, there's actually no preposition in the Greek for what we translate by the Spirit. The word by, right? By is a preposition. But it's not there in the Greek. We supply that word. You, you could legitimately translate this in the Spirit. You could almost say, but if in the Spirit... Or if with the Spirit, that would be acceptable in the sense that there's no explicit preposition. We supply, the translators supply this word. That's pretty common in every translation. And those three each have a different significance. The idea of in the Spirit is locative, we say. It's the idea of location. With the Spirit is the idea of participation or being accompanied. Like, you went with me when we traveled up to the Blue Ridge Parkway. He was with him, not in him, not for him, not by him. This way that we're translating it is what we call instrumental, by the Spirit, all right? So you could say, with the Spirit's help. As though you would say, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if with the Spirit's help, that is dwelling in the Spirit, with the Spirit's strength and wisdom and power, if we supply that to nuance it, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Remember then, whether we translate it by the Spirit, in the Spirit, or with the Spirit, in this noble and ongoing work of mortifying the sin that still remains in you, here's what you need to remember. He is in us. He is with us. He is for us. And he helps us. Brothers and sisters, this is the confidence and the assurance for every Christian in the most important lifelong endeavor. When James I. Packer, J.I. Packer was approaching 90 years of age, and I've shared this with you, he had like some six things that he told himself when he woke up in the morning and when he went to bed at night. One, one of those things was that God is my father, and therefore every Christian is either my brother or my sister in Christ. Let me ask you tonight, as we think about the mortification of sin, that is the killing of the sin that still dwells in us, that ought to cause us to say with Paul in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, as you remember to engage in this noble and ongoing work tomorrow,
whether it's lust or pride or laziness or the temptation to dishonesty, to break promises, to be mean-spirited, to gossip, to swear, to be profane. To quit to do what you've promised. To fail to do what you've promised. Remember these words. This is the one who said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's in you by his spirit. He's with you. You're not alone. Don't forget David's words in Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He's for you. He's for you. And he will help you. He's not ashamed to be your helper. Tomorrow, how? How will you confront the sin that still remains in you? Will you do it by your own strength? What John Owen says is the soul and substance of all false religion. Do you think you'll outsmart it? Do you think you'll outstrength it? No. You do it in dependence on him. Though he was a Mormon, Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he says, in the American culture, there is a misconception of what the real goal is. He says, we're born dependent, but the way we think, and it's very much the American spirit, is to become independent, self-sufficient, an island. We don't need others so much, we can do it ourselves. We're like the three-year-old that says, don't help me up the stairs, I can do it myself. Don't help me put on my shoes, I can do it myself. And Covey says that in reality, and I say it squares with with, with the teaching of Scripture, even as we face the killing of our own sin. It's not dependence where we remain in the sense or independence, but it's this interdependence. As we depend on him and we work with one another in community, as Pastor Jamie talked about this morning from Hebrews 10, those last couple of verses, where we're stirring up one another to love and good deeds. We need to do this as a community. And so we do it by the Spirit, but that work of the Spirit is by the means of grace, one of which is fellowship. I want to ask you a question as we close. Does anyone besides you know the sins that you are trying to put to death? Do you have a friend, a spouse, a brother, a sister who could say, I know so-and-so, and they've confided me, and I'm praying for them, and I have an open door to ask them, how are you doing in this area? Who knows you? Yeah, who knows you? Do you know, like one of the great joys of being back in Greenville for the last four years is I have in my co-pastor, Jamie, a man that I know loves me and he can ask me hard questions. And we can talk about things. And as he's loved me, and we can talk about those things, it frees me up to come and talk about the sins that I need to put to death. I'm free to do that, right? There's no slavish fear. 
I know he loves me so I can put it on the table. And I know what he'll do. He's either going to pray for me or he's going to take the word and help me see how the gospel will help me put to death what I'm struggling with. And it won't be so insurmountable. Who's helping you? If you don't have someone, find someone. Ask someone. Let's do this together as a community by God's grace.